You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. We will uh, eventually get to the passage in Proverbs 30 that Peyton just read for us, but we'll start in Proverbs 6. As you're turning there, if you're new, welcome to Citizens. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching online, welcome. We're continuing in our wisdom series. And really since January, we've been in a part of the series that I've just called the wisdom ands, because there are subjects uh, that uh, Proverbs specifically brings up that it wants us to know how to handle wisely as we live in God's world, God's way, uh, through relationship with Jesus, who is the person of wisdom who forgives our foolishness and invites us to become wise like him. And so there's been a myriad of topics that we've applied the wisdom and kind of category to. This morning, uh, we will consider wisdom for work and wisdom for money. So think with me about what you do for work. Uh, You uh, have a job, or maybe if you're even unemployed now, there's still work that marks your life. Uh, Maybe you wait tables, maybe you're an attorney, maybe you're a full-time student, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you work in IT or you work in sales or finance, you're a full-time caretaker, you stay home with kids, maybe you're a nurse or a doctor, you're in ministry of some kind, you work. And some of you have reached the height of your career. Some of you are just starting your career. Some of you are in between careers. Some of you love your job. Some of you hate your job. What's true is all of us work And in any given day of our life, our time and thought is consumed by what we do for work. And wisdom wants us to think and live wisely with our work. You also, friend, have money. And most likely that money comes from the work you do or the work you have done or the work somebody else does. And maybe you have a lot of money. Maybe you have an average amount of money. Maybe you have very little. Some in the room have more than they need. Some in the room have as much as they need. Some need more than they have. What's true, though, is we all have a relationship to money. We make it. We need it. We earn it. We spend it. We save it. And wisdom wants us to think and live wisely with regard to our money. Now, I need to pause for a moment and and speak to something. Um, I'm up here at a church as a pastor talking about money already. And there's no shortage of church headlines and scandals about churches' misuse of money, and there's no shortage of headlines about pastors who manipulate religious people to get rich themselves. And so, and it could be that someone in the room is new to church, has been hurt by church, is skeptical, cynical of church, and you're in here and you're thinking right now, here we go, another church that just wants money, this guy's going to ask us to give to his church, and then he's going to fly home in his jet or something like that. Um, And I understand why you have that concern. There are realities around us, prosperity churches, prosperity preachers that really are, uh, their motives are insincere and unrighteous. And so hear me, that's just not what's happening here. (laughs) Um, This doesn't end with me asking you to give to our church. I'm not actually going to ask at any point in this sermon for you to give money to this church. I also don't have a jet. I drive a 2013 Chevy Cruze that has a ton of hail damage. My (laughs) kids named it Tom Cruise. So that's us. So just to be clear and kind of try to disarm the conversation. This is not about a church wanting your money, but, and this is for all of us, it is about wisdom wanting your heart. And around both money and work this morning, we're reminded of something that we'll end with at the very end of our time together, that part of growing wise 
is refusing to compartmentalize the parts of our life that Jesus is Lord over and the parts of our life that we think we're better off without him. Jesus is Lord over all of our life. He wants us to be wise like him in every category of life. And around these, these are specific areas where we often are tempted to uh, keep Jesus at an arm's length because we think that we can do it better without him as without his words. So this morning is wisdom for work and for money. They could easily be separated. They could each be their own Sunday or several Sundays. I think there's wisdom in holding the two together. Here's our time this morning. We'll look at two foolish workers, one verse about Jesus and work, a prayer about money, and then a verse about Jesus and money. That's our outline. Two foolish workers. The first foolish worker comes from Proverbs. We've talked about him a lot. Proverbs names him the sluggard, and he or she is a foolish worker because they don't work. They dread work. So Proverbs 6, uh, 6 through 8, wisdom says this, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Um, I don't know when the last time was that you uh, stopped and watched an ant. It's not really something that adults do. It's something kids do, especially young kids. If you have young kids, you know this. A, a kid will get on the ground and will follow an ant with their eye for a long time. It would be weird to see an adult do that. Um, but it's not weird to see a kid do that. And so wisdom is actually inviting us to do that. Wisdom is inviting us to uh, be like children. It reminds me of what we've said about wisdom's posture. Wisdom's posture is low. It's humble. It has time to consider the wisdom that God has placed on the ground in his creation. And it says, especially to the sluggard, if you were to observe the ant, the ant would teach you two lessons that are in the ant's life that are not in your life. And here's the first. Without having any chief officer or ruler, it's saying if you took time to watch the ant, you would notice something. You would never see the ant's boss. The ant doesn't need a CEO or vice president or assistant regional manager or assistant to the regional manager. Uh, it's not working under compulsion of some authority, not working for fear of getting fired, not only working when the boss is watching. The ant works without having to be told to work. The second lesson is the ant teaches, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. There's a similar proverb that's not about ants, it's about sons. Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. It was a real honor to have Zach Eswine here last Sunday, if you were here. I thought he did a wonderful job on the subject of wisdom and rest. It was so helpful. He used a, a phrase almost in passing that we all as humans have noble limits. And I thought that adjective was really helpful. Uh, we have limits that are noble. They're not signs of weakness or signs of failure. We have limits that are just signs of being human. Uh, and, and we're image bearers of God, and those limits are noble. And, and entering into those limits, leaning into those limits, mean we have to pause, we have to take time to rest. And the phrase that he used over and again was we need to pause to keep going. And, and some of us, myself included, really needed to hear that wisdom for rest as one who's prone to go to keep going, to remember how God designed the order of our life to be a rest-work relationship. The sluggard, though, has the opposite problem. They only pause and they never get going. 
So the proverb talks about summer and harvest. There are seasons where more work is required and seasons where more rest is afforded. And the ant works when it's time to work and rests when it's time to rest. The wise work when it's time to work and rest when it's time to rest. The sluggard rests when it's time to rest and rests when it's time to work. And the ant says to the sluggard, look, uh, if you watch me, if you observe the wisdom in my life, you will be able to work without being told, and you don't rest when it's time to work. Here's the point. The wise see the goodness of work. Not just the necessity of work, but they have a conviction. They have a theology of work that uh, gets them out of bed. While the sluggard sleeps, the wise gets up and does good work. Work, friends, is a pre-fall reality to God's creation. Uh, Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. When does work enter the world? Genesis 1, with the creation mandate. And so before sin, God puts work in his world. He gives Adam and Eve a garden, and he says, hey, work this garden. Uh, Take care of it. Make things grow. You know what? There's hidden potential in the world that I made, God says. So cultivate it. In God's perfect world, he gives humans a meaningful, good, God-glorifying vocation. Now, that work is frustrated by sin. Uh, The ground is cursed. There's thorns and sweat and drought and wicked rulers and workplace conflict and economic recession and things that break and expense reports and all kinds of frustrating things that make work really hard, right? But work is not a glitch in God's system. Uh, It's part of God's creative design. Also, work is part of God's redeemed creation. I just think this is fascinating. I don't know all the details, but Isaiah says when God makes everything right, when Jesus returns in glory and his peace covers the earth, Isaiah says swords and spears will become plowshares and pruning hooks. Plowshares and pruning hooks, those are farmers' tools. Those are instruments for work. So weapons of war, swords and spears, will become instruments of work, plowshares and pruning hooks. Heaven is not a workless existence, it's a warless existence. And the wise see the goodness of work. Even in a world where work is frustrated by sin, while the sluggard stays in bed, the wise do good works. That's our first kind of foolish worker, the sluggard. They avoid work, they idolize rest, they fail to see the meaning and goodness of work in God's world. The second foolish worker comes from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes doesn't name him, but I think it's helpful to give him a name. Let's call him the successful failure. The sluggard on one side, the successful failure on the other side. They succeed at work, but fail at life because they made their life all about work and there's more to life than your job. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 21. This is a critique against work is what the preacher offers. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is hevel. I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes A person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, they worked honestly and diligently and wisely, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is Hevel and a great evil. You hear what he's saying? He holds up the picture of a really righteous, really rewarding, really successful worker, vocation, life lived well, a career that was spent doing meaningful things. And he says, you know what? Even that 
can only go so far in this world. There is an innate human desire for more than what work can satisfy. Uh, Tim Mackey, he's a teacher, a theologian. Uh, He helps run the Bible Project. Uh, And he, at his church, taught through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he spent a sermon on work. And he um, sums up the point that Ecclesiastes makes about work by telling this story. I found it helpful. He says, every year on a beach on the West Coast, they have a day called Sandcastle Day. Professional sandcastle builders, which is really frustrating that that's a thing, because I cannot for the life of me build a sandcastle that looks like something an adult did. But um, professional, on this day in some beach in, in, I think, outside of Portland or something, uh, professional sandcastle builders, they show up at the beach at like 7 a.m., and they build this incredible, beautiful art in the sand. They create these massive, creative castles. They work for hours and hours, and at 4 o'clock or so, the judges come through, and the judges judge what they've done and give out awards for what they've done. And the whole thing has to wrap up by around five o'clock. Like pictures taken, awards given, uh, all of that has to be done by the early evening. You know why? Because the tide. The waves come in and they cover the castles. The waves come in and they flatten the beach. All that work, all those hours, just in a few moments, a few movements of the ocean, and it's all gone. The water erases all of it. The tide wins the day, because the tide always wins the day. And Tim Mackey's point is, that's a metaphor for our relationship to work in this fleeting world, in this heavy world. Our work in this world always surrenders to the tide. Do you know that? Like in the verses we just read, it's an example of someone's life work going really well, a wise person that poured themselves out with skill and knowledge and wisdom. They gave their life to doing something that's worth doing. This is best case scenario. And what happens? It eventually goes away. You lose control. Someone comes along and ruins it all. The tide comes in and flattens the beach. The tides of time come in. Uh, The tides of someone's selfish ambition. The tides of an unpredictable future. The tides of aging where eventually I can't work like I used to. And they wash over that work because evening always comes. So there's a kind of worker. If that's the reality of the world that we live in, we cannot build something that lasts as much as we want it to last. The successful failure, they failed not because they didn't succeed, but because they believed about success that it has more power than it actually does. More power to last, more power to provide meaning. They worked as if the tides weren't real. They worked as if my castle will last forever. And so, because they believe that, they give disproportionate amounts of themselves to their job. And at the end of their life, or after they gain all that they're after, they realize, I can't keep any of this. The tide is coming. Now, I failed to gain the kind of success that lasts beyond me. So you might think, okay, well, then what's the point? Why even try? Let's just stay in bed like the other guy. Listen to wisdom's response to that. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 25. I think this is super helpful. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment? You know what it's saying? It's saying that the sandcastle is worth building. It's worth doing that work. It's worth it to use your gifts, to spend your life doing meaningful things, working in good ways, making beautiful things, even though the tide is coming. It's saying work hard. Work in a way that's consistent with with how God's wired you, right? The gifts that God has given you. 
work hard and enjoy it, but don't just work. Don't, don't make that the you know, ultimate thing in your life. Also eat and enjoy what you eat and drink and spend time with your kids and fight for your marriage and be a good friend and cultivate really strong friendship communities. And in all of that, remember God because it's all from him. Reminds me of what this book has already taught us about life. Life is a gift. It's from God. Be grateful for it. Okay, what are we to make of these two characters? How do we tie it all together? Wisdom holds the foolish worker in front of us, the sluggard of Proverbs, the successful failure of Ecclesiastes to teach us this wisdom about work. Work is good. Work is not God. Work is good. Work is not God. Um, if work is good, think with me about what you do. Maybe I named it at the beginning of the sermon. Maybe, maybe I didn't. Uh, but assuming it's not inherently evil work, like a drug dealer or somebody who runs an HOA or something like that. It, <laughs> just kidding. Assuming it's not inherently evil, assuming it's good, do you see your work as good? Um, our culture, our culture around us just worships leisure. And so like this picture of success, like the people who figured out how to work less and vacation more, they're the ones who've made it, right? So pay attention to a few things with me. Would you pay attention the moments when we look at our life and look at those around us and wish we could trade our responsibilities for someone else's free time? We need to pay attention when we call burdens what God calls gifts or when we begrudge the good work that God has entrusted to us. We lean in. We need to pay attention that we are not living for the moments in life that have less of our life in them, like less of my kids or less of my calling or less of meeting needs or less of my work, more living for the moments in life that are actually pictures of me escaping from my life and escaping from my responsibilities and escaping from my work. And if that's how I'm living, I'm living a life just trying to escape my life, that's a life that may not have a sluggard's hands because we have a job, but it does have a sluggard's heart because we just want to get to bed. And there's wisdom needed for that. Wisdom around work and wisdom around rest. Work is good. Work is not God. Goodness, there is a flaw around vocation and career and job that's deeply embedded in our culture where uh, we have been taught that a career can provide all of the identity we need and all the fulfillment we're searching for. So um, think about how we talk to kids. We don't ask kids, what do you wanna do when you grow up? We ask them, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And that raises the stakes on the vocation question. One of the most common sources of anxiety for high school seniors is not just choosing what college to go to, but choosing what uh, to major in, in college. One article that I read said, college students feel the pressure that picking a major is tantamount to choosing a career. And what if I choose the wrong one? It's just so much pressure. And if what I do for work is connected to who I am, what if I become someone I don't want to be? And how am I supposed to know all that as a 17-year-old or 18-year-old? It also places this impossible burden on vocation to provide endless amounts of fulfillment in life. Do you know the expression, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That sounds amazing. That's not true. Uh, it sounds good. It's not even biblical. Like The world is broken. Anything you set out to do, you will be setting out to do in a world that has been fractured by sin. 
And so as meaningful as it might be, whatever work you do is going to feel like work. It's going to be hard. The Apostle Paul worked full-time for Jesus, the most successful Christian missionary in the history of Christianity. And he says in 2 Corinthians, it got so hard, we despaired of life itself. We were crushed and we didn't want to live. Sounds like work. Well, he must not have been doing what he loves. No, he was doing what God made him to do. And just because it was meaningful doesn't mean it wasn't hard. You see, that's the kind of idea, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That's the kind of idea that sounds good at a graduation, but it doesn't hold up on a Monday, right? Work is work. And look, if work is my identity and work gives me my satisfaction, here's what you need to know. The tides are going to come in. And for some of us, the tides will come in in the middle of the day while we're still building the castle. Like some of you were chasing a dream job. You got chronically ill and you can't work like you used to. Uh, Some of you were pursuing a dream vocation, building a company that was worth building, and a few years ago, a pandemic shut down the world and your plans had to change. Some of us are in a different spot. Some of us are right in the middle of what we want to be doing, doing good work, raising children, making a living, maybe even moving up in the world, to use language we use. And things have gone somewhat according to plan, and yet we are finding it to be much more difficult and much less fulfilling than we thought it would be. And if we, like the successful failure, have given our work a job it can't do, then we will never know who we are and we will never be satisfied with what we have. Hear me, work is not God. Brothers and sisters, God alone tells you who you are. God alone satisfies your heart. Namely, Jesus, our Savior and King, who lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose in victory over sin and death. Who we are is defined by Him, our our blood-bought identity in a perfect Savior. And our restless hearts are satisfied in Him, not in our work. So here's a verse about Jesus and work that the wise would be wise to take to heart. Colossians 3, 23 through 24 This, friends, could be an anthem verse over anything you do, whatever your good job is. Whatever you do, work heartily. It means sincerely. Work with confidence. Work with purity. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work is good. God is God. All of us who follow Jesus get our identity from him, our satisfaction in him, and then we are invited as Christians to offer our work as a sacrifice to him, to offer our work to him in the present with the expectation and anticipation that we get to see him and hear well done from him in the future. There's a prayer about money that Peyton read for us. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. If I were to make a list of the top 10 Proverbs in this series that, I don't even know how to say it, um, just kind of punched me in the face, I guess. This would be one of the top 10. Hopefully you'll understand. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, verse eight. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a money prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, he prays. It's a prayer about money. And whoever wrote this is talking to God. And he says, God, 
don't make me poor. Have you ever prayed that? I have. God, provide. I don't want, God, I don't want to be poor. God, help. Uh, we don't have enough. We're bleeding our savings. We need you to do something. Don't give me poverty. But here's his reason. Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's saying, I don't trust God that I won't sin against you if I'm poor. I don't trust my fickle heart with the circumstance of poverty. If I become desperate enough, I don't trust that I won't sin against you by stealing something and profaning your name. Poverty, friends, is not a virtue. People in poverty can be virtuous. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He was perfectly, beautifully faithful in life. Uh, we hear of the widow who gave out of her, uh, the very little that she had and she gave generously and she's held up as an example of righteousness. We see in scripture examples of the righteous poor, but poverty itself is a part of the brokenness of the world. It is not good for people to go hungry. It is not good for people to not have the basic resources needed to survive and flourish in this world. This is a little bit tangential, but it's really important. One of the things you see in Proverbs is that Proverbs does not oversimplify the cause of the poor. Meaning, uh, where we would want to make like a really black and white dichotomy, Proverbs doesn't do that. Proverbs doesn't simply say, well, people are poor because they're lazy. Proverbs doesn't simply say people are poor because of the system. It's more complicated than that. You actually hear both in Proverbs. Some are poor because they don't work, and it's an unrighteous poverty. Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Someone talks about working but never actually works, they're going to be poor. The guy or girl that always has a plan but never has a paycheck, that's unrighteous poverty. Or the guy or the girl that always talks about why they don't have money but never takes the faithful steps within their control to do good work and earn decent money, that's unrighteous poverty. Some are poor because they oppress the poor. Proverbs 22:16. whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. They were rich. They handled money selfishly. They handled the poor oppressively and they became the people they oppressed. It's an unrighteous poverty. Some are poor though because of injustice. Some are poor because of circumstances outside of their control. No matter how hard they try, they stay stuck in the state of poverty. Proverbs 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food. What happens? Swept away through injustice. They're poor because of injustice. They literally cannot catch a break. This ground I have, I've been working hard, sweat and blood, and it would produce food, but someone keeps coming and sweeping away all my hard work, and so I can't get out of the state. These are the righteous poor. They're people who are in a state of poverty, and they are righteous in that state of poverty. It's not because of their sin. It's because of someone else's sin. Some are poor because of the absence of righteous men and women around them. Proverbs 29.7, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. So where the community, the city, the state, the country, better yet, the church is filled with righteous people, righteous men and women who know the dignity of the poor, the poor have a chance around them because the righteous advocate for them, know the rights, know the inherent dignity of being a human, even if it's a human without a lot of money. And where there is an absence of righteous voices, the poor are dehumanized. These are the righteous poor. We would be wise around the issue of poverty. 
especially the way that we see this issue engaged with in our political discourse, we would be wise around the issue of poverty to be slow to pass judgment on who around us is unrighteously poor and who around us is righteously poor because Proverbs says it's complicated. We need wisdom. We don't know everything there is to know so often. Back to our prayer. Our wise friend has a different concern. He says, God, keep me from poverty because I would be prone to be unrighteous. Uh, I would be more prone to sin and I don't want to sin against you lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's not excusing his sin. He's just saying if I'm in a place where I am starving and my only recourse for food is to steal from someone, I do not trust my fickle heart to not sin against you, God, and profane your name. So please just keep me from poverty. There's another side of the prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches because with riches lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? God, keep me from getting too much money. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I haven't. (laughs) I've never prayed that prayer. Uh, God, don't let me get this promotion. God, the house we have is fine. We don't need to upgrade. God, I don't want to be in the will of that rich relative. We resonate with the prayer, uh, keep me from poverty. We wince at the prayer, keep me from riches. The wise see something. Their relationship to money is all about their relationship to God. God, don't give me poverty. Why? Because I don't want to sin against you. God, don't give me riches. Why? Because I don't want to be rich and ignore you, deny you. God, I don't want to be seduced into believing I can live without you. He says, there is an amount of money that will begin to numb my hunger for and need of God, and I don't want to be filled with money and empty of God. He asks a profound question that we're going to be invited to ask. What will it cost me to be rich? And his answer is, wealth will cost me reliance on and closeness with God, and that's a price I'm unwilling to pay. Have you ever considered that? What will it cost me to have more? My first job, I started a business when I was in sixth grade. I washed windows with my cousin Joel. We called it J&J Window Cleaning. We were great salesmen. We were average window cleaners, so we had a lot of one-time customers. (laughs) Uh, Here's the story. You know why I wanted the job? Uh, At the middle school I went to, there were two lunch lines. One was the reduced lunch line and one was the snack lunch line. And the reduced lunch was just a standard kind of -of run-of-the-mill lunch. My family didn't have a lot of money. Dad was a pastor of a small church. My mom stayed home to care for my little brother. So our family qualified for the reduced lunch price. Uh, I think it was like 40 cents. Uh, And the food in the reduced lunch line was some kind of vegetable and and some kind of pasta. They called it something different every day, but it was the same thing. Uh, Then there was this glorious place on the other side of the cafeteria called the snack lunch line. And, and it had nachos and cheese fries and burgers and taquitos and everything you needed to be a good student. And um, the best thing they had was they had these personal pepperoni pizzas. And I don't have evidence for this, but I'm pretty sure they were made by angels. They were really, really good. And for $3.50, you could get a pizza and a Hawaiian punch. Now, here was the most important thing to know. Um, the kids who ate in the reduced line sat on one side of the cafeteria. And the kids who ate in the snack line sat on the other side. And that's why I wanted the job. I didn't want to be a reduced lunch kid. Middle school is brutal. It's hard enough to fit in without everyone knowing 40 cents is about all you got for lunch. 
And I wanted the better food, but more than I wanted the better food, I wanted the status that came with the other side of the room. Proverbs 14, 20 says the rich have many friends. Money has this social buying power. And I didn't know that proverb in sixth grade, but I knew that reality in sixth grade. And so I wanted that sense of superiority and privilege and acceptance that came with the other side. And guess what? All it costs is $3.50 a day. So give me a bucket of water and show me some windows and I will earn my way to the table of privilege. And you know what I never asked? I was a Christian then. I never asked which side of the cafeteria God wanted me to be on. I never asked which side would give me more of God. I never asked what would it cost me to earn my way to the superior side. Which side, God, would give me more dependence on you? Which side would give me more opportunity to share the gospel with my friends? Which side, God, would give me your eyes? Because when God looks at the cafeteria, he doesn't see rich and poor. He sees a room full of image bearers. And he sees those who have put their faith in him, and he sees those who haven't. And what is true is the poor kid who trusts Jesus has infinitely more than the rich kid who has no need for God. And I never considered if what I was really after was something that God had already given me in Jesus. And if I had prayed my own money prayer as a sixth grader, my money prayer would have sounded like, God, don't give me poverty. Instead, God, give me enough money to buy from people what I can only get from you. You know... I have a lot of compassion on a sixth grader just trying to fit in. I look back on that story with grief and gratitude. I get it. Here's my question for a room full of mostly adults. Have we made it out of that? Is that in some way a picture of your life right now? How many of us are doing what we do because we're trying to get to the status side of the room or we're trying to stay on the status side of the room so our work and our money is about securing for us this sense of acceptance and superiority and comfort so we're out of middle school but we're still trying to earn our way to the table of privilege. Is there any space, goodness, in your heart to stop and ask, God, what do you want? And be open-handed with what he might be calling you to. God, what is this costing me? If you're at a place in life where you're just grinding to try to earn more and to try to build more and to try to acquire more, what's it costing you? What's it costing your family? Uh, most of all, God, maybe getting more of all this is in some way keeping my heart from getting more of you because all of this has a way of convincing me that I'm just fine without you. And if we were to be honest, our money prayer would sound similar. God, don't give me poverty. Instead, give me enough to buy from people what I can only get from you. Would you hear the warning? It's supposed to fall with conviction. Money is one of the most seductive substitutes for God. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He makes a connection between the physically poor and the spiritually poor because the physically rich are often so busy building their own kingdom, they see no need for God's. So what are we to make of all this? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Money can be good. Money can't be God. Money can be good. It can be used in good ways. Poverty is not a virtue. Money can't be God. There's a verse about Jesus and money that the wise would be wise to take to heart. Paul tells first, uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy that Jesus is going to return. And then he says, in light of Jesus' return, here are some truths for people with money, which, friends, most likely the part of the world we live in, that includes all of us. We are rich compared to the rest of the world. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, 
Um, he specifies the rich in this present age because in the age to come, when Jesus uh, uh, resurrects all those who belong to him and we live in the new heavens, the new earth forever with Jesus, we all have way more than we need. Everyone has a wealth of feasting and joy and worship in the new heavens, the new earth. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't give your money power to do what it can't. Instead, put your hope in God, who richly provides what we most need. Don't use money as a substitute for God. Enjoy what God has given. Enjoy the work God has entrusted to you. Don't worship it. 18. To the rich, they are to do good. And you know what they need to be really wealthy in? Be rich in good works. Have more character than you have money. Be wealthier in righteousness than riches. Proverbs 19.1, better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a wicked man. And then he says this, be generous. In light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How do you know in your life that God is God and money is good? You are willing to give your money away, to be generous, to be ready to share. And, and God will uh, call us to that in different amounts, into different degrees, into different seasons. But the mark of those who have who are following Jesus, who are hoping in his return, not in the riches that we have, the mark of those who have is that they are willing to give out of what they have to those who don't. Let's close this way. Uh, the messenger feels far from the message. I have a foolish relationship to work. I have a foolish relationship to money so often. So I wanna ask uh, some questions for us to consider, myself included. They're best considered together in prayer. So would you bow your head with me? Maybe even close your eyes if that helps keep you from distraction. I just want to ask some questions. Remember we began by saying that Jesus is Lord over all of life? There's a tendency to try to shut him out of these areas of our life. And wisdom is calling us into more. So here's a question. Would, would you consider this? Are you grateful for the work God has given you? Are you grateful? You know, it could be an especially difficult season at work. So at least you see it as good. You're doing good work in a world that God originally made, wired for work. Here's a question. Are you worshiping your work? Look, are you on your way to being the successful failure? You're going to look back over a lifetime and you're going to say, if I could do it all again, I would not have put so much time and energy in something that can't withstand the tide. Is money, is the pursuit of money costing you more than what it's worth? If you think maybe, uh, maybe you have more now than you used to and you think back to a time when you had very little and you, maybe you would say, my story is when we had less, I just felt closer to God. Because the things I have now didn't stress me to a point of forgetfulness of God. Or the things I have now didn't numb my heart to the hunger for God. Would you just consider that? 
Have you, have you unknowingly paid a price in pursuit of money? And maybe God is asking you to return. Are you generous with what you have? Oh, I wonder, friends, if God is calling any of us to give a painful amount of money to someone in need. I wonder if if God is calling us uh, to forego some of our immediate future plans so that we could sow in to the future that is coming when Jesus returns. And I, I don't have a lot of details for what that could look like in your life. I trust the Spirit of God in your life, but maybe He would, as an act of obedience, encourage you, convict you, call you to demonstrate that God is God and money is good. And one of the fruits of that, one of the evidences of that, is that there's generosity that flows out of your life. Last question, it's the most important one, and we'll pray. Do you believe Jesus loves you? Because none of it, you know, we could, we could make a couple of adjustments to work and we could give some money away, but if that's not flowing from a place of confident hope in and trust in our Savior who did all the work for us in the most important ways, who paid the ultimate price in our place, who died, who rose, who one day is bringing a world of abundance and satisfaction and joy and worship. If this isn't all about Him, it's foolish. Lord, we love You. We need You. Goodness, God, forgive me where my words could have been more careful. God, would your word go out beyond just this humble offering of a sermon? Would it go out as conviction? Would it go out as encouragement? Would, it, um, would the words go from ears to heart and then would they make their way out of our hands and down to our feet that we would respond wisely and obediently to you? We love you. We need you. God, our work is good You are God. Money can be good. Jesus, you are the treasure of our life. Amen.